0: Hello, hello! On today's episode, we have Therapist May. Join us for a conversation all about existential philosophy and finding authenticity. Together, we talk about shifting between our rational mind and body wisdom, recognizing the scale of the universe, and the praxis between philosophy and psychology. Y'all, you have heard me talk about existentialism a multitude of times on this podcast, and if you're ever curious what that actually really means, May and I get into a great conversation about finding authenticity in the multiple choices that we have available to us in this large and vast universe. So if you want to explore your existential dread and what it means to be in relationship with other people, then this is the episode for you. Tune in! So, your academic side, could you tell me more about where that was coming from? And, like, yeah, what are the caveats? I'm just kind of curious for you.
1: Yeah, sure. So, it probably makes more sense if I try to give a big picture narrative. Sure. Um, I
0: love that. Yep.
1: I grew up more or less wanting to be a professor. Mm -hmm. Um, And I did go to a PhD program in philosophy uh, right after undergrad. And I started out wanting to do history of analytic philosophy. um, So specifically like Wittgenstein and um, foundations of logic stuff and gradually shifted over the years and ended up starting a dissertation um, in aesthetics, Mm. Uh, sort of, it was addressing the the big, big question of aesthetics, like, is there such a thing as um, an intersubjectively valid aesthetic judgment? And I was trying to answer, yeah trying to answer the question from a roughly human point of view, but also built in was a sort of feminist and, you know, race conscious critique of the, of Hughes actual answer. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was the project. Yeah. And I ended up leaving ABD. So I had written written and had approved like about 30% of my dissertation and I walked away from the project, which was actually a pretty traumatic experience. It literally had a dream last night that was related to it. And oh. it has been many years. <laughs> like,
0: yeah. If, uh, if you're willing to share, I'd I'd love to hear. Wow. Uh, what the dream? I mean, both. I mean, whatever you're willing to share <laughs> about this experience, it sounds like it was a lot. Yeah. Yeah, it, it was a lot. I mean, I,
1: I suspect you, you know this already, but um, there's a lot of like, people I think who, who go into, uh, PhD programs in the humanities often tend to have their identity really wrapped up in that. And that was me.
0: Mm, mm-hmm.
1: And it's very much a way of life. Uh, and less gentle way to say it is that, you know, grad school is kind of a cult and you can mean <laughs> that lovingly, or you can mean that very critically. And I probably yes. mean it both ways.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. Mm. Um, and the, the walking away from it was never, I hate this work and I don't want to do it, which made it a little more troubled, I think, of a yeah. decision than it would have been had it been differently. It was just like a, a confluence of things, uh, mm-hmm. feeling sort of wildly unsupported as a person mm-hmm. in that environment and having an advisor who she disappeared and sort of didn't give me not only didn't give me comments, but also like I couldn't get her to respond to an email mm. saying when she might be able to give comments for months and months and months, yeah. and it's also like quite depressed. And you know, there were like personal things that were hard, and it was just at the time kind of like ah, there are no jobs, yeah. and I don't know how to make progress because I need this person's response before I can know where to go right. from here. And you know, the the department was like not very helpful when I wow. went in for this. Uh, to, to sort of say, well, I can't get in touch with her and she's not giving me comments before I do. And I had been through, this was like, I was at UIC and I had arrived the year after uh, we got our first union contract and I'd been mm. super active in the union and had been kind of like, I think gradually coming to understand, to understand systems of oppression, including class based oppression and including the idea that what I was doing was actually work and the people I was working for did not see it this way Mm. but was also like getting as part of doing my dissertation research I was gaining the vocabulary and the concepts to describe the aspects of my own experience Mm. of like racism and sexism within the academy that were was quite punishing um, Mm. in many ways and and coming to consciousness about it and having it be so raw and sort of like getting the language to talk about it from the discipline I was working in, which was also very punishing to me was somehow it was too much emotionally. Wow. Yeah. Were I to be in the situation with the dissertation now, I think it would be very different because I've had so much more time to sort of, integrate mm. everything that i learned and, and become accustomed to seeing mm. what's happening more clearly yeah but at the time it was much too raw and so i was just
0: mm. like nope yeah yeah enough this right which makes sense for safety sense at that point like it didn't make sense to continue in an environment that you weren't being supported and had all these other layers of like oppression going on at that time
1: yes i think it makes sense for for what it was at the time and yet i i wish that you know I wish things had been different so I'd been able to Mm -hmm. finish the project because I I still quite – I still find the question quite interesting and I still quite like reading philosophy and Mm
0: -hmm. Mm – Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting question. How – like, did you get – I mean, I know it's probably not the right question. Like, what's the answer? You know what I mean? I think in philosophy, that's a big question. What's the answer, right? But did you get any sort of like answer to that question? I mean, ish. Yeah, exactly. As I could <laughs> have. I'm curious what you found from your research and like even now looking back on it, kind of what your perspective is on that question.
1: I mean, I thought then and I still think now that there there is a right answer indexed to a certain community of appreciation mm. that one has to be kind of like inculcated into or you know sort of fluent in the language of yes and then yes in this context there is a right answer but it's not the right answer for everybody for all time right and there can be other right answers too and uh, when it comes to adjudicating between right answers I don't actually tend to think that one is righter than the other right yeah it's just two different cultures that you're looking at Mm-hmm. In
0: a sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly, and yeah, a lot of my work is with relationships, and I think the same thing applies. Where it's like, what's the right way to be in a relationship? But it's almost it's always impossible to have that question pulled out of the cultural context that you're in, right? Uh-huh. Like it, it's just impossible to pull those factors away. And so within that, it's always going to depend on whatever culture and other you know values are in that society to answer that question. So there is no right or wrong, you know uh-huh. what I mean? Just different answers yeah yeah that's a great
1: analogy that makes a lot of sense mhm mm-hmm.
0: so then you you stopped the program. Where did you go after that what what do you decide to do after getting thirty percent of your dissertation done uh
1: so i, I hung around for a little bit yeah. um during something else i I actually migrated to the Germanic studies department where <laughs> Spent a semester teaching German, seeing if I liked it.
0: Totally different. Yep. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Okay. Uh, Writing about German literature. Um, And then I I moved to Berlin, ran away to Berlin as one does. (laughs) And then sort of like, there was a period of me just figuring out what, what can I do with the skills and interests that I have? Yeah. So let's see, I I taught, I taught English uh, as a foreign language Mm -hmm. and I taught philosophy and literature And cinema studies and foreign languages to high school students at a school for gifted kids. Yeah! Wow! Yeah! I worked in study abroad in Russia, and then I sort of, you know, through various experiences that I had through all of that and in my own personal life, gradually came to realize that what I actually wanted to do was be a therapist. And so Mm -hmm. I came back to Chicago Mm -hmm. to retrain to do that.
0: Yeah. 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 Yeah if you're willing to share, like what sort of personal experiences do you feel like led you to that path? Because I, I feel like every therapist, anyone in the helping profession really has like a personal story to like what it was that kind of propelled them to, to leap into this field. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. There's always something,
0: isn't there? Yes. Yes. (laughs) That's what I like to pull out. I'm like, what's the something? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's, it was
1: a lot of somethings.
0: Yeah. It sounds like it
1: hmm I mean, part of it was the career change itself, right, yeah. which was quite emotionally complex for me. Mm. Um, some of it was going through relationship stuff mm. uh, and sort of like, I don't know, doing a lot of more introspection and a lot more thinking about that relationship and how it worked or didn't work yeah. at the time. A very big part of it was uh, losing my sister. Oh, um, yeah, she, during this period, she uh, was diagnosed with a terminal cancer, mm. and I was one of the people who um, took care of her through her brief and harrowing illness. Mm. And and during that, that experience, I specifically discovered that um, there weren't a lot of resources available, especially in the community where she lived, for people who were not religious. Mm. And it really felt like you know, there needed to be something. We needed something that was that. And yeah. I realized how oh, therapy is what that would have been. Mm-hmm. After a visit from a very nice social worker who was sort of the most helpful person wow. that we encountered.
0: Yeah. So you were able to see that person come in, in that role and, and, and feel that meaning and the importance of that sort of work in a very personal way.
1: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, she was sort of – she was very grounding – for us Mm. the family members as well as to my sister herself and I could sort of see how what we got from speaking with her Mm. then reverberated through I mean the family system
0: and Mm.
1: you know was was beneficial to all of us I think
0: yeah I love that word reverberated like through your community and your family, I think that's a beautiful way to talk about what the gift is of therapy, right? And, and even beyond therapy, just the gift of human connection that we can give to other people mm-hmm. by changing them and changing the energy and the perspective.
1: Yes, it it needn't be under this aegis of, you know, professional Mm -hmm. therapy. It can be lots of different kinds of encounters.
0: Exactly, exactly. That's something I was thinking about, too, because, I mean, even therapy itself is like a privileged thing that a lot of people don't have. So then how do people have that same sort of community support through other ways that aren't this like professional academic lens, right? Because that's also what we need as a human species. And so people are doing this role in different communities, in different ways, not necessarily just the academic, you know, trained professional therapist or social worker.
1: Oh, gosh, yes. And yes, and there are contexts where you know, somebody who has that specific training and does it professionally is maybe not who's
0: needed or who's wanted. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Without the right skill set to speak to certain groups of people. Yeah, definitely. So then that was the, you feel like the big point that kind of switched where you were like, this is what I want to do. Was this something you had thought about in the past, maybe becoming a therapist or was it a big shift?
1: I had toyed with the idea before. Um, I think this, this was the thing that made the really Mm. big shift. And then there were like, you know, other things that were maybe less intense after Mm -hmm. that, that sort of echoed it back to me. Like, yes, this, this is what I want to do. Yeah.
0: And then how Um. long have you been doing it now?
1: Uh, not so long. Um, let's see, this is my second year okay, of wow. doing it.
0: Still yeah. fresh.
1: Still very, very fresh. Yes. So I'm still finding my way. Yes. It. Yes.
0: Completely. Aren't we all right? What do you feel like you've gained in the last two years of working as a therapist? Oh, I know. Big question. I know. <laughs> I mean,
1: I would say, Well, one thing, right, is like when you work with clients, you have this kind of privilege of getting access to like very richly textured, very different human experiences. Mm -hmm. Somebody describes to you in a very fine grained way what their experience is. And, you know, a huge part of your task is just to understand, Or, you know, the way that I work, a huge part of my task, maybe the major thing that I'm doing is really trying to understand what that is for them. You know, that's kind of incredible because we don't get a lot of opportunities to go that deeply into someone else's experience. And so I guess I've, I've learned a lot, you know, not only about the way certain things are in the world, like what kinds of experiences do people have when they encounter the medical system? Mm-hmm. Um, but also just sort of like the the amazing the amazing individuality of, of yes. the way that, uh, per, that different people take up these things that we do all encounter in common in the world, and mm-hmm. so I would say I have a renewed appreciation for that and for yeah. the richness and kind of unpredictability of, of that.
0: Yes, yes, a hundred percent. I mean. I think one of my favorite metaphors, I mean granted I'm still in training, right? So I actually don't have clients yet. You're you know, the people on the podcast are as much as I get to drop like drop into this world of seeing people's perspectives right now but I I like to think of it as like galaxies and other systems are almost like astronomers where we're peering Mm -hmm. into this world and like looking at their stars that they see. Cause everyone with all of their relationships and meaning making, they all have their own little galaxies of what this life is. And right. I think a lot about the uh, subjective truth in that, that we get to dive into and Mm -hmm. learn from, I think it's such a beautiful thing. Yeah,
1: absolutely. I love I love this that it's galaxies because yeah, it's like you've got a really nice microscope or sorry, not microscope, but telescope, and you get to peer in and you, you get somebody to tell you what's what, it, what you're looking at. Exactly. Never, You'd never
0: know otherwise. Mm-hmm. Exactly, which I think is beautiful. And I think with that lens, it can make the work very interesting to be looking at like, yeah, everyone has their own experience of truth in this world, right? I think this is where maybe the existentialism starts to come in. I'm curious how that relates to your work. And I guess also on the podcast I've never had anyone define like existential thought I talk about it a lot because I'm passionate about it but I would love to hear how that relates to your work and maybe just like a general definition of existentialism if you could I know that's a hard (laughs) but yeah I'll
1: I'll do my best uh with the caveat that you know people disagree about how to define things and people think very differently about you know existentialism or any other school of thought and how it figures in their work. Okay, So with that disclaimer aside, Mm -hmm. um, the way I think of it is that existentialism is a body of thought slash maybe also a method for thinking through Mm -hmm. situations and experiences that a person encounters from the perspective of the one encountering it and Mm -hmm. that it, you know, sort of deals with a set of questions about more or less universal human experiences like death, anxiety, freedom, and relationships with other people. So sort of like if you were to talk about human life in the most general sorts of terms from the perspective of an individual experiencing it, these might be some of the big chapter headings that you Mm -hmm. would
0: have Mm -hmm. in that
1: book. And this is a way of approaching them.
0: Yeah, yeah. I have one of the post notes. It's got death, existence, isolation, and meaning. Yeah. Four. Yeah. Yeah. Chapter Um, heads of so those are the big chapter. Yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And I feel like even more within context. I I think what I understand. Correct me if I'm wrong. Right. This is not my area of expertise. This is just my fun. Yeah, things that I like to talk about. Um, Existentialism, I feel like, is also this understanding that there is no objective truth or meaning to our existence, right? And within that, we get to choose what it is for us, not like a nihilistic, there's no point, right? Uh Because I feel like sometimes people really get those two mixed up, the understanding of existentialism and nihilism. And so when I talk about existentialism, they're always like, ah, that's, that's so dark. That's so meaningless. And I'm like, ah, you're missing the second leap yeah. from that um, point.
1: Yeah. No, I, I agree with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's funny that people have that reaction, you know, it's the same reaction that like Sartre encountered and that's, that's why he wrote you know, existentialism mm-hmm. as a humanism, essentially mm-hmm. one of the reasons, but yeah, I mean, I agree. It's, it's, So I think the recognition or the idea that there is no inherent predefined meaning or point to human existence does sound very jarring, upsetting, depressing, anxiety inducing, et cetera, to people. But then, yes, the part that comes after that is that you, you know, you have the freedom and also the tremendous responsibility to define what that is for yourself, which is like not an easy task, but Mm -hmm. I think, you know, a rather wonderful task.
0: Exactly, exactly. Which makes sense that it's difficult, right? Like because you have I, – I always equate it to the difference between going to Trader Joe's or a Walmart, right? You go into Trader <laughs> Joe's, you got one option for spaghetti sauce. You know, it's great. You go into Walmart, you got a whole wall, you know, and we get this analysis paralysis when you have so many options. And yeah, when there's no objective meaning, you know, you come up to this big unknown void of what am I going to do with my oh, life? Wow knowing I could do anything.
1: Absolutely anything. Oh, it's terrifying. And personally, I, I prefer to shop at Trader
0: Joe's because there's only one option. Which exactly. Maybe says something about that experience. Yeah, analysis paralysis. It's scary, right? It's like, and and I think that's why we're like, um, some, sometimes the language used to describe these things is that, yeah, we're forced to make uh-huh. that choice. That is our like suffering, right? Is that we have to decide what we're going to do with this opportunity, being it so big and expansive. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you think about the fact that you only get one life
1: yeah. and it only lasts so long, mm-hmm. and you could literally do, you know, maybe not any of the things, but an awful lot of the things are available mm-hmm. to any individual at a particular time. Yes. It's, it's a kind of, it's an irrevocable choice that you make at each moment. Mm-hmm. In the not in the sense that you can't go back and do something different, or you can't change your plan, or you can't realize that you know the meaning of your life or the purpose of your life is something slightly different than what you thought, or radically sure. different than you thought. But sure. at each moment, you are you are making a choice to do something and you know be something, and you won't get that moment back. Yep. So in a small way, we're constantly encountering the horizons of our life or our our limitations
0: exactly exactly yeah i mean fluidity we can decide what meaning is and all these sorts of things throughout our life but exactly what you said like time is always eluding us so there is no way to get back that time and knowing that death is inevitable it it, work yeah exactly we're constantly facing this choice of like is this the most quote-unquote authentic you know decision for me and i think that's such a difficult thing to determine. I'm curious if you have any thoughts on, yeah, what authenticity is and how you find it. Oh, gosh. I know. That's I'm just giving you easy questions <laughs> on a Saturday morning. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> yeah, uh, the good questions. As a philosophy of mine, I'm sure you love them just as much as I do. These are great, juicy questions. Yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll, again, do my
1: best. Mm-hmm. Um, gosh, You know, like, this is one of the curses of reading philosophy, like, when you ask me what is authenticity, I immediately start thinking about how difficult it's been for others to define that. Mm. Um, For me, though, I would say something like this. Acting authentically is acting as much as possible under the circumstances, including including under the circumstance of like never having even complete self knowledge, Mm -hmm. Um, acting in accordance with your own values, your own beliefs, your perception of what is really like the best, rightest and most you thing for you to do in a given situation. Mm -hmm. And I think I'm saying it with a lot of caveats around it because there are always like limitations on the things that we're able to do And there's, there are also like limitations around how clear we can be at any given time about what our own values and beliefs and the the best, most rightest most us thing to do even is, which is maybe where this starts to intersect with therapy, um, Uh, like trauma, you know, interferes with our ability mm -hmm. to
0: even be able sometimes
1: to feel. The best,
0: rightest, most us thing to do. <laughs> oh, a hundred percent. As someone who's gone through a handful of toxic relationships, yeah, I think yeah. it's hard when what your heart says is toxicity. I want that. And it's like, how do we sit when, yeah, things like that, which maybe aren't necessarily my highest, authentic, you know, value system, conflicts with maybe what trauma and classical conditioning Ugh. has taught me to like, and then yes. trying to define like, okay, when do I trust my gut versus when do I look at this as something that's, you know, a maladaptive choice or, uh-huh. you know, something like that. And then it gets so hard to tell the difference between the two and that. Yeah. There into that. Yes. Torturedly hard when <laughs> <Yes>. what feels <laughs> like home and the the waters that we
1: should be swimming in is actually just the thing that feels familiar and it's terrible yes
0: Yes, exactly exactly I'm curious because I have been I don't know if you're like me or you're oh so much up in your head here right a lot of thoughts a lot of critical thinking you like logic I like you know that's where I love to stay and I've been trying to learn more about trusting my intuition and feelings and body-based wisdom I'm curious how that lands for you and what you as a fellow philosopher like think about that.
1: I'm nodding vigorously because I can relate to that particular struggle or learning curve um, so much. Yes, me too.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Because I think part of me wants to stay in the, you know, academic realm of pure science. And then the other half of me has these repeated experiences where I feel like my body might have, you know, might have been telling me something that I ignored, like just, you know, a gut feeling about someone or a situation. And I've been trying to lean more into that. But it's such also a big like unknown without, you know, empirical evidence to kind of like guide whether I'm being – following me or following a trauma response or something. It's just so hard to know.
1: It's incredibly hard to know. Yeah. I've been on a, a similar kind of journey of specifically in my case trying to listen to my body when it's showing me that I feel anxious because mm. I tend to uh I'm not great at listening to my gut. Um mm. and and my gut has led me astray many times.
0: Exactly. Which is why <laughs> yeah. we're we're con you know cautious to follow it, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. But you know, like a funny experience I've had, and I recognize this is not everyone's experience of this thing, but my experience of raising a little kid has been really
0: helpful. How has that been? Tell me. Uh, It's been
1: a wild ride. Um, I can imagine. Yeah. But it's, you know, it's for some reason, perhaps because the person, maybe because the person who's This welfare I'm thinking about is not just mine, but also this tiny human's. Mm. Maybe because in situations where I need to listen to how I'm feeling, I'm not in the situations usually that also trigger my trauma response. So it's Mm -hmm. kind of a safer laboratory to practice or something. Sure. But it has been really, really useful, I think, and helpful in learning how to be in my body and in my emotions mm. and actually listen to them because um, my little kid doesn't doesn't care very much for my intellectualizing um, and doesn't do much <laughs> of it. Does do some of it himself, but doesn't do so much of it sure. like, like I do. Yeah. And it has some pretty clear body-based wisdom of his own that mm-hmm. if I don't listen to it right then you know things will be bad for him but also because of especially because you know I'm still still nursing him mm-hmm. uh, like because our physical bodies are now so part of a single system mm-hmm. listening to him is also a cue to listen to me and sometimes sometimes it's the same thing and sometimes it's different things that we yeah. need but um I'm sort of forced to attune to that all the time and mm. A place that is, again, for me, wouldn't be for everybody, but for me, a relatively safe place to be doing sure. that.
0: Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's such a beautiful wisdom that kids have of that body base, you know, this doesn't feel right for me. And I don't, I don't know when we stopped listening to that as adults, but it's, it happened somewhere along the line and trying to come back to that can be so hard. But I think, yeah, here you have a little galaxy in your hands, right? Where you're able to kind of (laughs) peer in and see it again and now learn from someone. And I, I love that, you know, Reversal of the roles, right? We always think about like teacher, student, these sort of power dynamics, but I think people frequently forget that it's it's always flipped just as much, right? Like you're learning from your child just as much as I'm sure they will and are continuing to learn from you.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Sometimes I think I'm learning more, mm. um, <laughs> but I'm not. I'm not sure.
0: Yeah. Well, I think it makes sense. I mean, I don't. I don't have any kids, so, you know, don't take my word for a grain of salt, right, or whatever. But um, from what I've read and understand, a lot of it is about co-regulation, especially because children don't know how to do that yet. So one of the important things that we can do as parents or even older siblings or anybody Uh with a younger child is be able to co-regulate with them, which means relaxing what we're feeling in our bodies Uh so we can both relax together.
1: Yes, one hundred. Yeah. That is mm-hmm. like that is I think the thing that I was pointing to that you've just said in a much more articulate way. A lot of it is like notice I notice that he is dysregulated. Yeah, I look at the situation and at myself and go, huh, of course you are. And then I calm myself down in mm-hmm. order to help him allow to calm down because yes, yeah. he doesn't have that ability yet. Yeah, to do it without help, and so you know things like when he's having a tantrum, he's not two and a half. Mm-hmm. Um, me, like sort of taking a deep breath and reminding myself like, yeah, you know, you're, this is happening because you're very distressed about something. It makes sense that you're distressed about it. You're two and a half and, yeah. you know, something has happened that's wildly out of your control, maybe, or you're very tired right. or you're hungry. Right. Now I calm myself. I modulate my voice in order to mm-hmm. calm down. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, there was, there was actually an episode of the Ezra Klein show about this where he talked about, uh, about doing this, um, interacting in, in this way with his child, but that, you know, it had occurred to him that we don't often think about that when interacting with adults. And yet, you know, we just as much are co-regulating beings yes. and we need that from other people. 100%.
0: A hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, we have mirror neurons, right? That when we're looking at another human, we feel what they feel in our bodies and that's a part of our human experience. And so then, yeah, the ability to co-regulate, I think, is the beauty of connection and experiences like therapy, right? Where we're able to have that container space. I don't know. I guess for me, I feel so sensitive to everybody's energy, not in some like woo-woo way, but like when someone is feeling sad or anxious, like I can feel that in my own body. So I'm Uh curious if you feel that as a therapist and a fellow person that's on this path.
1: Oh gosh, yes.
0: Um, I do.
1: And one of the things that's been sort of amazing actually about doing therapy is that I feel like I've become more able to tell when it's happening, like mm-hmm. not just that it sort of happens and I'm, you know, the person in front of me is suffering. And so I'm feeling also generally rather sad and suffering and mm-hmm. taking in what they're saying and feeling, but mm-hmm. also that I'm sort of aware of the moment in my body where I tune to their wavelength. Um, mm-hmm. And it, I've gotten better. I think to it, parsing out what's my feeling and what's their feeling because <sighs>
0: Tell Just me way more. Long. yeah what how did you do that? Please share that that is like rich knowledge. Oh gosh
1: how to articulate and I'm also still learning this but yeah it seems like a, a lifelong task it is I think yeah yeah I mean, I think for me it started with with the intellectual side right of okay. like client is talking about a thing that you know, I have a really big emotional reaction to and being able to track sort of which parts of my reaction are about me and something that this triggers in my own experience. Mm -hmm. Right. So as an example, a client was talking about something that happened in their family of origin that they found really hurtful. And I had had a similar, a similar episode in my family of origin that I also found very hurtful. Mm -hmm. And so you know, a a big part of my task in that moment is like holding space for the client and not taking up space of my own Mm. because that's not my space to take up. Mm -hmm. And so like afterwards in supervision and also, you know, alone, I was sort of parsing out like, you know, what exactly happened for them? How did they experience that? What about that was hurtful to them? Mm. Okay. And how did that, you know, how did that connect to the many like, nodes or like different parts of the rhizome that is them and the way that yeah. they are in the world and, and so on, their emotional galaxy. And then, sure. you know, mm-hmm. and then doing that for me mm. and then in the next session, sort of being aware of it. And when it came up, being able to parse out more in real time, which parts of this are me taking in their thing and which parts of this are me independently feeling my thing. because It's yeah. important to keep my responses kind of purely focused on them. hmm. But I would say, through like many hours of doing that with everybody, because every client at some point brings up something that hits a personal note. Yes. (laughs) Mm It's possible for it to be otherwise. Mm -hmm. Sort of come to notice, to be able to tell, like, oh, this body feeling that I'm having, this is me hearing what they're saying. Yeah. And sort of seeing their body language. And Mm. this feels. You know, I don't, I don't have like a, a horse in this race, Sure, yeah, this no, game, that's whatever fair. the metaphor yeah, is, yeah, yeah. you know, like this, this is just definitely, I'm, I'm feeling this way because I'm taking in what they're
0: exactly. sharing. Yeah, versus, exactly.
1: You know, like versus they're saying this thing and I'm feeling myself tense up because I'm thinking about that memory where this other thing happened to me or, or even what they're saying to sure. me is landing as a microaggression or something, and I'm feeling really revved up about it.
0: Yeah. Um, Interesting. Okay. So yeah, yeah what I, what I'm hearing is like the ability to kind of Track what might be activating for you and through a lot of time of, I mean, supervision, having other people talk about uh-huh. it with you, taking space to reflect and these sorts of things so that you can kind of know the difference between the feelings, which is, yeah, these are, you know, things that don't have right words yet, or we don't have as a human species to describe empathy and these sorts of things yet. Um, but. I think it's valuable to point out that you're still feeling their emotions. There is no point at which you start Mm -hmm. to block. You still feel, you know, that grief that they feel in your body, but you're able to recognize where it's coming from. Yes,
1: that's right. Mm -hmm. It's about figuring out the source and being a container for it as opposed to being A source of it.
0: Yes, I love that distinction. I think container is interesting. And in that, you're also giving so much of yourself. You know what I mean? I mean, and I think this i think this applies, right, to even people that aren't therapists and outside wow. of our work as therapists, just as humans that connect with other people. When someone's sharing a moment of, you know, it can be positive things like joy or really sad things, like that ability to feel that in ourselves and be in that space with them, I think is more of a universal experience that needs to be talked about.
1: Yeah, people don't talk about that much, do they? Even though it's the foundation of relationships and you know, is the reason or sort of the purpose or the thing that we do when we gather to celebrate Mm -hmm. something good that's
0: happened Mm -hmm. for somebody. Yeah, (sighs) exactly. Yeah. In the non-monogamy space, there is this word called compersion. Hmm. which is about experiencing joy from your partner's joy. And even like things like Uh, that, like I don't think we have a – Exactly, right? And I think that could even be used in uh, non-poly situations when you Uh look at your friends and other people having joy. Like the ability to feel those emotions with them and be in that space, I think, is such a beautiful gift of relationships and healthy connection,
1: yeah, absolutely. Oh, I love that there's, a. I didn't know this word and I love that there's yeah. a word for that. But yes, I mean, I think that that makes sense to me within the context of non-monogamy. And it also makes sense in the context of something like, you know, your friend published their book that they've been working on for 10 years and you feel the joy that they feel at having completed this thing and put yes. it out into the world. And yes. Yeah. And it exactly. is so much of what
0: holds us together mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but we don't have language for these things yeah or think about it you know like i'm happy for them i think is typically what we say mm-hmm. but like we don't really embody the joy of other people and i without the suffering which i think makes sense because we can't like i don't know we I live my life this way, I feel like as an emotional sponge, but like it's hard to do that, you know what I mean? Because then you you go a lot of different directions with people and so like how can you still maintain your sense of self uh-huh. while also being an emotionally vulnerable and op- open person to people's fluctuations? I feel like that gets kind of difficult I don't know, for me, I need a lot of alone time. That's how I function mm-hmm. is I need time to be in my own container and my own <laughs> ocean and just like feel back to me. Yeah. Yeah. Same. I need a lot of time to recharge and, you
1: know, different people are, are different with different, are comfortable with different levels of like porosity, you know, yeah. in these matters. But I think we all obviously do this to some extent, but mm-hmm. yes, it can be very tricky depending on your temperament and, yeah. and what your sense of self is and how how okay you are with being vulnerable in that mm-hmm.
0: way and yeah, yeah yeah I'm curious too how do you feel like your therapy work has affected your relationships in general
1: uh it definitely yeah.
0: has um I'm curious <laughs> I'm like I know the answer is yes so
1: <laughs> yeah I mean I think in the beginning it probably affected it in slightly awkward ways like I could no oh, longer this. turn off the I'm just holding space for you and not saying anything of my yeah. own right now. <laughs> uh, yes. That is still where I'm at. So <laughs> please help. <laughs> oh gosh. I mean, yeah, I, I know I've made it really awkward for friends who actually wanted me to be there as me. And I think, I think my experience was mortification when I realized I had done this and that it was like not satisfying to the person sure, on the other side. Sure, sure, just sure. being like, Oh, that was really bad for them. Yeah, Not what they wanted and they were confused. Um uh, and then just kind of learning to, that it's okay that right. I take off my like therapist cardigan yeah. or whatever when I take it. <laughs> Accurate, <laughs> accurate. <laughs> yes. yes I, there's a meme that I'm thinking of. Oh, uh, that's funny. Yeah. Like sort of convincing myself that it's okay for me to be a person, sure. just a regular person in my off hours. And yet, you know, I would say I'm, I'm a little more more attuned to the way that I respond Mm. to people now, maybe, Um, and a little more attuned to, again, like the ways in which what they're saying or situation they're in might be quite activating for me, and sort Mm. of a little more sensitive around, like, and is it helpful for them to know that (laughs) right now? Maybe yes, and maybe no, because the boundary is very different in a friendship. Exactly. Um,
0: It is completely different, right, and I... The cardigan. I always say hat, but I kind of like the cardigan. I'm going to say that now. Uh The cardigan, the therapy is, is yeah, fundamentally different than the relationship of a friendship. There's just different space taking. I think even what you oh, said wow. earlier of holding that container compared to maybe playing in a container with a friend or something, you know, it's just yeah. completely different. But I found myself – as just like a budding clinician in this field to always be listening to other people and then be like, okay, well, I need to do empathetic following listening Mm -hmm. back that I've heard them and repeat that I'm listening to them. And then I'm like, so up here in my thoughts of how do I listen and be an effective, caring human that I feel like I am no longer human because now I'm like, you know what I mean? But You're like trying so hard that you're actually undermining the thing that you meant to be doing. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. I actually talked to Dr. Woody about this. I'm like, so what do you do? Like, when does the empathetic listening and following repeating and like caring for someone like change you know from the therapy sense to friendships and like when do you oh turn that God. off or do you turn that off maybe we don't you know like it, it is different but like the energy behind listening and reflecting back empathy and unconditional yeah. positive regard those sort of things maybe they should be in all of our relationships you know what I mean I mean I,
1: I do tend to think so yeah yeah I- I, in my I think of my best friendships as mm. having that kind of shape and yet I'm also yeah. you know not afraid to when somebody says something about a thing that's happened to them neither am I afraid to say just oh that's awful <laughs> I'm really sorry which is maybe not what I would say
0: in therapy yeah yeah i
1: to <laughs> also say like And that happened to me too.
0: Let me tell you about it. Yeah. 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 It's, yeah, yeah, it's different. It's a different dance of energy. Um, But yeah, I think the the skills are something that I'm so thankful to be learning of just connecting with humans. And I think, it's it's so fun if you're an equal soul like me to be able to bounce off the ideas of philosophy and all these things. And actually, I th- feel like therapy is the praxis of these ideas, oh right? We can get so much in our heads about like, you know, what does this mean? What is this? But actually, what does that look like in the day-to-day lived experience of walking in the world?
1: Yeah, gosh, yeah.
0: yes.
1: Actually, so for me anyway, this, this is – getting toward the answer of like how how does existentialism relate to like doing therapy yeah um because for me at least you know I I think intellectually I think it's true that we don't have a a predefined you know essence as human beings and so we don't have like a predefined meaning or purpose to our life and sort of how does that look well Uh. you know to me that's a lot of what I see people hashing out in therapy and what I love mm. to kind of be there to have space for. is like people figuring out, you know, well, what is it? Cause you know, no matter what it is that somebody is, you know, coming into therapy to talk about, there are these moments where people will bring up things like what is the meaning of their life or their awareness that their time in this world is limited and what are they going to do with it? Or, you know, what,
0: what is, Absolutely.
1: what is their isolation? And, you know, all of these sorts of things. And yeah. I think my ear is very attuned to that. And Absolutely. to maybe holding space for, for those points of that moment of like aporia where the person sees that they don't have the answer and they mm-hmm. haven't yet figured it out.
0: Hmm. Completely. Yeah. I want to respond to that saying that like, I, f- I feel like, I mean, existentialism came out of like the modern movement and I feel like with our current, access to knowledge of the world. I feel like existentialism is going to be the big thing of future generations, just Mm -hmm. in the sense that we know so much about the world and we know so much about the scale of the universe and our slight, slight small scale in comparison. And how can you make meaning of your existence knowing all this information that Humans before really didn't know. Do you know, we've never had this amount of access to information at our fingertips to kind of like, this is like the Walmart, right? Of, of info of the world of everything. Now it's just, I don't know how we could ever make sense of this where I feel like a lot of therapy work is going to be existentialism in the future of like, yeah, what do we make meaning? How do we make meaning of this complete void?
1: Uh, uh uh huge
0: huge in a way that humanity has never really been able to see i think because of the internet and access to information
1: yeah sure i mean it's it's sort of like the idea of you know people during the agrarian period living in a small place and not being maybe more than 10 miles away from home during their entire life and now we have the awareness of like river situated in the universe and yes it's and and also sort of yeah, it's huge. And the smallness of our social worlds within even just like the you know, earth.
0: I know. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Right.
1: Yes. Yeah. And also, and this is like on a more grim and doomy note, but also climate change, right? I mean, mm. sort of the finitude of this place that we live mm. and this way of life that we're currently living, Yeah, in, I think it's, it's top of mind for a lot of people, especially younger people.
0: Yeah, definitely. A hundred percent. Yeah. I feel like the more I look at the grand scale of the universe and the absurdity that it is in in all of its glory, the more I come back to the importance of even the small scale, right? Like the small scale for me personally of my little tiny universe of the relationships that I know, knowing that it is so big. I come back to okay, so the meaning is right here. It's like in the close relationships that I am building and and when it's so big, it's really just about the humans for me. Yeah,
1: that's kind of lovely and like very sort of paradoxical and yet makes perfect sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I, it's like um it's that that William Blake thing of seeing the universe in a grain of sand or something. Like mm-hmm. I've come to love I love cultivating my tiny window box garden. <laughs>
0: exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And take meaning in that, you know, we don't have to conquer the world and, and understand all of it to have a beautiful and significant life. We can build something right here that is meaningful to just you, just me. I think, again, that's the existential subjective meaning and uh-huh. beauty of what we have is that you can create that life and it is just as beautiful because it's important to you and it doesn't need make sense to anybody else.
1: And I think actually in a funny way, you know, knowing so much more about what other people are up to in the world, but also, you know, sort of how vast the universe is and how tiny we are in it, in a way I think it makes it easier to embrace that because there's no possible way that you could be doing, you know, it it feels, you know, people during the Renaissance could be sort of masters of all the knowledge, mm-hmm. all the current day scientific knowledge of their time and they could, yeah.
0: you know. Um, yes, they were. They were. They knew everything. Yeah, yeah. That they could because there was a limited amount of knowledge to know at the time. Yeah, exactly. Um, at least knowledge of that
1: kind, right? Yes,
0: yes. Um, and it's just so painfully obvious that,
1: you know, we, we can't do that and we also can't be everywhere at all times, mm-hmm. you know. Like mm-hmm. when I sit and scroll through my phone, I can be for a moment at you know, a party in Dubai, and then I can be like in Mexico on a beach, and then I can be somewhere else. And you know, I can't actually be in all of these places, and I can't yeah. do all of these things that I see even people I know doing. Exactly. And it's a bit freeing. It's fine for me to do, you know, this thing, whatever this one thing is that I'm doing now.
0: Hmm. Hmm. I think that was a beautiful way to put it. Yeah. And the and the grandness of the scale, we're able to find. Yeah. The life in the one piece of sand. And I think that's a beautiful way to look at it. Yeah. I want to hold space as we come to the end if there's anything that you feel like you really wanted to use the platform to talk about or hit today. And that's okay if you don't have anything specifically. I also have a closing question, but I just like to leave a little bit of space in case anything was on your heart.
1: No, I appreciate that. I don't, I don't have anything specific. So let's hear okay. the closing question.
0: Yes. My closing question is what is one thing that you wish other people knew was more normal? Oh, just like anything, anything related or not. Related. Oh, Unrelated. I've had people say nipple hairs, <laughs> men crying, you know, I've, I've yeah. had the whole gamut and I love to leave it just wide open. Oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. Take your time. I've got tea. I haven't even sipped yet. We're good. <laughs> <laughs> There's
1: like a galaxy of things that I mm-hmm. wish people knew were normal. It can only be one thing, though, right? It needs to be eight that's part of the challenge
0: challenge me do what you want to do if you've got multiple on your mind we can talk about it there's no rules that's the anarchy of this right there's no rules <laughs> <That's true. laughs> so you can just okay. say I don't want to answer it and I'd be like okay <laughs> yeah
1: no okay so I also I also wish that people I want to normalize not just men crying but like masculine people having emotions that are extremely mm-hmm. complex and and being hurt by things and mm-hmm. feeling vulnerable about things. I also want to normalize toddlers nursing. <laughs> like yeah. a lot of people do that and don't talk about it. Yeah. Um. As well as oh, family co-sleeping. I don't want to normalize. Mm-hmm. Like everyone tells you, you're a terrible person who's going to kill your baby. Really? If you do that, yeah, because you know increased risk of, risk of sins, they say, etc. Oh, yeah, sure. Um. Which actually is not the full story. That. I want to normalize people sleeping on the floor, like mattress on the floor, no bed frame. Ooh, yeah, wow. it's actually great. Okay, first of all, uh, it, if you have a, a thin mattress and a back that likes firmness, it's yeah. actually great for your back under those circumstances.
0: Interesting. Yeah, 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 yeah,
1: yes. Yeah. Second, you know, you have to use a lot more of your body getting up. So, you know, if you're mm. able to do this, mm-hmm. if, if your body is a body that does that. It can actually be kind of nice for the joints to to happen. Sure,
0: get up, yeah, yeah. Mm.
1: Um, Oh, I want to. You know what I wish people knew was normal? Like actually taking. And this is the opposite of the thing I just said, which is (laughs) very (laughs) love this. But people taking time off because they're sick and like not working. I I want people to know that, for example, I take sick days when I'm. You know, not even just like deadly sick, but like sick, you know, and not feeling well. And then I, I don't check email and I don't feel any need to do any work. And I know that's a privilege to be able to do that. Yeah. But for those who are in the position to do it, you should do it because we should normalize this for everybody.
0: Yeah. 100%. Um, you know, so you're telling me that you're worth more than your capitalistic production as a human being? Can you imagine? I cannot. <laughs> yeah.
1: I, I am uh, not just a means of production for somebody else. I'm a human being and so
0: are you. Wow, crazy. Especially in America, though. There's that point where it was like, I think it was like a, someone, a European, goes out for vacation. They're like, Yeah, I'm out for the summer. Like, email me in September. And then an American's like, Yeah, I just had kidney surgery, but you can reach me at myself. <laughs> <Yes! laughs> and I was like, oh my God. Uh, Yes. It's so yes. true. Mm-hmm. American culture, especially, really pushes uh-huh. that. So I think that's a beautiful thing to normalize that rest is needed and rest is deserved and rest is important that you are much more than your means of production in this life
1: yes but no please see the nap ministry for further
0: details I've never heard of that what is that uh
1: there's this person I can't remember their actual name yeah um but they are like a rest activist among other things yeah the the nap ministry they 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 do other things too
0: but that is
1: like the way that I became aware of them and one of the things that stuck
0: Hell yeah, I'll check it out. I'll check it out. Well, yeah, I appreciate you coming on the podcast and just bouncing ideas off at the fellow philosopher. These are always fun conversations for me. Thank you for having me. Yeah, yeah. I also appreciate it. Of course. If you enjoyed today's episode, then leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcast. And if you're a part of the anarchist community, then follow us on Instagram or nominate a guest for the show by sending in a letter to modernanarchypodcast at gmail.com. Otherwise, I'll see you next week.